Before we get started with today's episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight, we want to let you know that we have exclusive bonus content on Patreon at patreon.com slash amped up. You can find the video versions of all our interviews, so make sure you check out our bonus content today at patreon.com slash amped up. Thanks for your support and enjoy the show. Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Stephen Donziger. Stephen is an advocate, a writer, and the environmental lawyer who helped win the historic $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron. Stephen, welcome to Amped Up. Thanks so much for having me. So look, when I first heard about your story, it really reminded me that we're living in the upside down world. Uh, But just to bring everyone up to speed who hasn't heard about your story, uh, back in 2013, you helped win a landmark $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron on behalf of 30,000 indigenous people from the Ecuadorian Amazon, whose homes and health were devastated by decades of oil drilling and by Chevron dumping 70 billion liters of oil and toxic waste into the Amazon. This was the largest human rights and environmental court judgment in history. But instead of complying with the judgment, cleaning up the Amazon, and paying for the damages it caused, Chevron has spent the past decade waging a smear campaign against you and going after you in court, all because you, hel- you helped hold them accountable for the suffering they caused uh, to the indigenous people of the Amazon. Before we talk about the latest trial, can you first share what it felt like right after you won that landmark case in 2013 against one of the biggest polluters in the world? And subsequently, what it's felt like for the past decade to have one of the biggest corporations in the world persecute you for doing the right thing and holding them accountable for polluting the Amazon. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. I mean, look, you know, first of all, I didn't win the case. The communities of Ecuador won the case with the help of their lawyers, me among them. I did play a leading role. There were several lawyers working on this, including a team of Ecuadorian lawyers. You know, Chevron wants this to be everything about me, not about the Ecuadorians. So I want to sort of say Mm. that at the outset, and we'll get to that point in a second. I, of course, felt great when we won the case. I mean, I've been working on it since 1993. I also handle a lot of other cases. I was a criminal defense lawyer. I did a variety of cases. Um, But, you know, to go up against Chevron, which has literally dozens of law firms and 2,000 lawyers who've been working on this case, and we're a small group of dedicated human rights lawyers. It was tremendously gratifying to win and to get the judgment, which, by the way, has been affirmed by six different appellate courts, including the highest courts, the Supreme Courts of both Ecuador and Canada. This mm-hmm. is a great historic victory. Um, Chevron, unfortunately, decided not to comply with the judgment or the rule of law. Um, internally, we have documents from their own emails to prove this. They decided that their strategy was going to be to try to demonize the lawyers, in particular me. They said our long-term strategy is to demonize Donziger. I live in New York. I've been to Ecuador 250 times over the 20 years of the litigation to work with my clients and to you know, work on this matter. And they decided to, you know, they had wanted the case in Ecuador. They'd accepted jurisdiction there. They decided to come back to New York and they started to attack me in court. Um, They found a very friendly pro-corporate judge, Louis A. Kaplan. He's a former tobacco lawyer, tobacco industry lawyer. Um, They sued me under this civil racketeering statute. They claimed the entire case in Ecuador was a fraud, even though it had been affirmed by 28 appellate judges. Kaplan denied me a jury. 
Chevron paid a witness $2 million. He came in and lied. He claimed I bribed a judge in Ecuador. There was no evidence that happened. It's totally mm -hmm. false. They paid him a ton of money to say it. And without a jury, I had no chance because this judge pretty much had it out for me and had it out for the Ecuadorians um, and ruled that the, the judgment was obtained by fraud. So, you know, in that point, this was in 2014, you have one U.S. trial judge who wouldn't look at any of the environmental evidence that the Ecuadorian courts relied on, who ruled the case was a fraud based on a paid witness that Chevron put up against 28 higher level appellate judges in Ecuador and Canada, including the Supreme Courts of both countries that ruled the judgment was valid. Hmm. And, you know, but because I live in New York, Chevron kept using its local law firm here, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher to go to the judge. And as we proceeded to litigate the case in other countries to enforce the Ecuadorian judgment because Chevron refused to pay it, um, they went back to the judge and started to attack me. Um, they got millions of dollars of cost orders imposed on me, even though I never had a jury. They bankrupted me. They took my money. They froze my bank accounts. Um, we kept going and ultimately they concocted this scheme to lock me up. And the way they did that is they demanded the judge order me to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron for inspection on the theory that I was, you know, they could collect money from me for these bogus cost orders he had imposed. And on my computer and cell phone, obviously, is confidential information. It's protected by attorney-client privilege and other legally recognizable privileges. Right. And I told Judge Kaplan, I'm like, I can't turn this over. That would violate my ethical duties to my clients. They hold the privilege. They're not even in court. I said, why don't you hold me in civil contempt so I can get an appeal of your order to the federal appellate court here in New York? And he did hold me in civil contempt at my request. I appealed the order, and while it was on appeal, he charged me with criminal contempt of court for not complying with his order, the lawfulness of which I was appealing. I mean, no, this has never happened. It's unheard of for anyone to be charged with criminal contempt after appealing this kind of order. Never happened in the history of our country. It happened to me. And on top of that, he had me locked up in my own home, where I've now been for 653 days on a misdemeanor charge were the longest sentence ever imposed on a lawyer convicted, and I haven't even been convicted, is 90 days of home confinement. And on top of that, his criminal charges, which again, I believe are baseless, were taken to the US attorney in New York for prosecution. That office declined to prosecute me. I mean, they recognized this was not a real case. So Kaplan then appointed a private law firm to prosecute me. So I'm not being prosecuted by the government. I'm being prosecuted by a private law firm called Seward and Kissel that has none other than Chevron as one of its clients, not to mention a whole host of oil and gas industry, major players in the oil and gas industry. This is a fossil fuel corporate prosecution. You know, it is the first corporate prosecution in US history based on our research. And I'm the first person charged with a federal misdemeanor in the entire United States who's locked up pretrial. It's crazy. And, you know, they plan to put me in prison. I have no doubt. I again was denied a jury. I just had my trial a few days ago. I say trial in quotes because it's not a trial as trials normally take place. I mean, it was all kind of fixed in advance. There was no jury. The judge had ties to Chevron. Um, the prosecutor had ties to Chevron. They wouldn't let me testify on my own behalf to explain why I did what I did. 
So we have a great appeal, but the trial was a disaster for, you know, because it wasn't a real trial. It was a show trial designed by them to try to demonize me and criminalize me. And I'm still in home detention awaiting the, for the judge to rule. Um, and she certainly will convict me and I'll then have an appeal and we'll see how it plays out. So, so let's talk more about this current trial, which, as you said, is just wrapping up. One of the most shocking things about this current case is that the judge actually appointed a private law firm with ties to Chevron to prosecute you after federal prosecutors declined to bring charges, as, as you just stated. Mm-hmm. How does something like that happen? How does a U.S. judge allow a private law firm to prosecute you when it has ties to the very corporation that you won a, li- a landmark case against? Like, how, how does this happen? Like, the, like it, 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 it is illegal. I'm telling you, it has never happened before. And there are two abusive judges, Kaplan and Loretta Preska, who are doing Chevron's bidding and they are trying to play a game and they're abusing their power. And the appellate court, unfortunately, hasn't stopped them, at least not yet. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons this is happening. I mean, reason number one in my mind is there's, you know, the, 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 cor- the pro-corporate elements of our federal judiciary, which has strengthened a lot in recent years, as everyone knows, um, is extremely threatened by me and by what our team has done. I mean, the, I- the very idea of brown people from Ecuador, indigenous peoples, winning a major pollution judgment against a leading U.S. company in their own courts, no less, working with talented, lawyers from the United States and Canada and Europe, backed by funders, wealthy individuals, and even investment funds, sophisticated people who get what's happening here, get the importance of this case to saving the planet and to justice and environmental justice, they find that absolutely terrifying. Hmm. And, you know, the idea of transferring billions of dollars of Chevron's capital from San Ramon, California, their headquarters, to the shamans in the jungle. I mean, it wouldn't literally go to them. It'd go to a fund that would be used for cleanup. Um, is something they can't handle. I mean, this is the fossil fuel industry. They don't pay court judgments won by poor people over pollution. I mean, they just try to use their money to hire lawyers to pound the people into submission. And that's what they're trying to do to the Ecuadorians. I mean, when the Ecuadorians won the case, the first thing the Chevron lawyer said is, if you don't drop this case, I promise you a lifetime of litigation. Another lawyer said, we're going to fight this until hell freezes over and then fight it out on the ice. You know, there's a degree of racism and anger at the very notion of these indigenous peoples aligning themselves with northern professionals, as well as professionals in their own country, Ecuadorian lawyers, who have created a powerful international team to hold Chevron accountable. And they've never seen this before. So by fighting it so hard, locking me up in this, you know, illegal corporate prosecution run by a private law firm, um, they hope to not only avoid paying this judgment, but they hope to intimidate human rights lawyers, environmental defenders, and everyone who does this critically important frontline work, which is necessary to hold major polluters accountable and save the planet. So, you know, through this epic case is the the ultimate battle royale 
between those of us who want to save the planet and protect the frontline guardians of the forest, that is the indigenous peoples on our planet, and the fossil fuel industry, which is the most polluting industry on the planet and the one that is most responsible for global warming. This is the epic battle through which this will potentially, or to some degree, be resolved. So the fact I'm in detention is not a good, a good sign, honestly. But you know what? It's because of our success that they're doing this to me. It's not because mm -hmm. of our failures. I mean, they're threatened by the power of what we have done and are capable of doing. And that's why I remain really hopeful. Look, this trial that just happened, honestly, it's a little blip in the larger trajectory of this battle. Um, you know, it's a non-jury trial. She will convict me. She will try to put me in prison. Whether she succeeds or not, I don't know. There's a lot of people supporting me, 68 Nobel laureates, AOC and Jim McGovern and Cori Bush and Rashida Tlaib, major people in Congress and hundreds, thousands of lawyers around the world, 37 bar associations. I mean, we have massive support. People are demanding my release, demanding dismissal of the case, okay? So there's a battle going on and it's being played out to a great degree through what's happening to me. It's unfortunate for me. It's, I have a family, by the way, a wife and a 14 year old son. I live in a small apartment in Manhattan where I'm locked up. You know, they're in a way locked up with me. I can't go anywhere. Um, but we are hopeful and we are resilient and we believe we will get through this and ultimately they will be held. They've already been held accountable. They lost the case. They will be held fully accountable by being forced to pay the judgment so the people of Ecuador can clean up the Amazon Chernobyl disaster that Chevron left. And we should talk about what they did when you get a chance. But this is sort of the overall picture. Mm. Your lawyer recently said, and I quote, make no mistake about it. We are not watching a trial as that word is normally understood. We are watching a production brought to you by Chevron. Look, we already know that the executive and legislative branches of our government are bought, paid for, and controlled by corporations. But, it, but if Chevron gets away with this, does that mean that our judicial branch is also bought off and compromised by corporate greed? Well, that's a critical, critical question that I've given a lot of thought to. I mean, I've, I've been a, civically engaged and I'm a news junkie, you know, for most of my professional career, and I'm probably quite a bit older than you. And like, I'm sort of really trying to understand what is new about this? Okay, you're totally mm -hmm. right. Like, if you go back to 1980, you know, when Ronald Reagan was elected, you know, from 1980, almost to the present, there's been almost an uninterrupted increasing consolidation of corporate power in our society. I mean, it's extraordinary, even under Democratic presidents, to be yep. frank. That's right. And, you know, so, you know, yeah, the legislative branch is, I would say, to the for the most part, bought off by corporate power, not completely, but to a great degree. The executive branch, very much so, lobbying, executive branch agencies, even our Democratic presidents are always triangulating. Okay, we get that. You know, you would think the judicial branch would be the one branch independent of that kind of power. But what's happened, as many people know, is the Koch brothers funding network and their allies, you know, set out with a plan to control that branch as well. And it happened through, you know, funding the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network and all these organizations that are trying to get right wing judges, pro corporate judges on the federal bench. And obviously, this process accelerated dramatically under the Trump administration. 
and the plan of Mitch McConnell to quickly, you know, put all these really poorly qualified right wing young judges on the bench. And I can tell you from experience, it's very hard to walk into any federal appellate court today. And we have a three person panel and you have at least two of the three, at least two of the three, and sometimes three of the three are very pro corporate, some extremely right wing. And like, if you get a good judge in these days, it's like a, the good judge is like a centrist who's also pro corporate, right. but just more mild yes. form. You yeah. never see a human rights lawyer on the federal bench. You rarely right. see a criminal defense lawyer. You basically have pro corporate ideologues and former government prosecutors, okay, on the federal bench. So when you want to do a human rights case, you are really swimming upstream from day one. And it's extremely hard to deal with a structure that is completely designed to quash the idea, at least in my case, of foreign indigenous people, foreign meaning natives of the Amazon, coming into a U.S. court to hold accountable a U.S. oil company that has destroyed their lives. Mm. Okay. And at least in New York, my experience, by the way, I'm not discounting the entire U.S. federal judiciary. There are some very able judges. But what's happened in this little pocket here in Manhattan, in my case, is there are two judges who have taken control, given it to Chevron to lock me up. And they're facilitating the whole process and really laundering a Chevron prosecution through their lifetime appointment as federal judges. And that's the rub of the problem in my case. I actually think most federal judges who would have gotten Chevron's case against me, which is a civil racketeering case, no jury, would have thrown it out. Even, even centrist or even you know, traditional Republican judges would have thrown it out because it's so obvious what they're doing. But I mean, these judges took Chevron's side and really acted more as Chevron prosecutors than judges. And here I am, you know, I'm still hoping the Second Circuit Court of Appeals the court in New York that oversees these trial judges that are doing this to me, you know, acts to stop it. But, you know, frankly, all these judges work out of the same courthouse. They're friendly. It's like a club and they tend to want to protect each other. And, you know, I work out of my kitchen table. Okay. I don't have an institution behind me. I don't have an academic institution. I don't have a big law firm. Big law firms would never do this case. Okay. We're a team of lawyers who work independently. We communicate via email and phone calls and everyone works out of their home or small offices around the United States, Ecuador and the world. I mean, we don't we don't come out of those big institutions, hmm. you know, so they just I think they calculated they could just crush me. But, you know, I also I have a lot of respect for my capabilities and I think they've miscalculated. I mean, you know, we're still fighting gaining more and more support all the time. Even this show trial that they just ran without a jury, they look terrible. I mean, you look at the press coverage, independent press coverage, because the mainstream press is ignoring the story. The New York Times hasn't touched it for years. Yep. But the press coverage is very unfavorable to Chevron yep. and favorable to the Ecuadorians and to me. So, you know, we, we're, we're, we're sort of juiced up right now. I mean, we think that the the extreme measures they're taking to try to silence our advocacy um, is evidence that they are losing and will continue to lose and ultimately will have to pay the, the judgment to the people of Ecuador that they have won. Hmm. Well, Sorry these answers are so long. 
No, that's it's spot on. You know, the only way to beat corporate power is with people power. So, you know, and that's kind of the where the progressive movement and where the grassroots uh, movement is in this country uh, to fight things like climate change and to fight for things like Medicare for all. It takes everyday Americans coming together uh, to fight back against injustice. And so it's been it's been awesome to see just an outpouring of support for for yourself. I, I I heard Marion Williamson's speech right outside, I think, where you are right now uh, of house arrest. And, you know, it was just fantastic, uh, that rally. And, you know, I saw Free Dozinger uh, trending on Twitter, you know, a few weeks ago. And so it's, it's nice to see that, like, in a nation where so much power has been stripped away from everyday people by these, uh, you know, giant corporations and corrupt politicians uh, who just serve their interests, it's nice to see the people uh, getting involved in the political process and understanding that we can take our power back, you know, that, it, that, that we can build these movements and, and fight back for, for the justice and dignity that we all deserve. Uh, now, with that said, yeah. you know, sometimes I kind of stop and after looking at your case, and, and I love to see your resolve because, you know, I think a lot of people are looking to you right now. Uh, and looking to you because you have been so wronged and, and, and you have, you know, this giant corporation. It's like a David versus Goliath story. I, I, and, I, I, and you're taking yeah. on, you know, you're taking on Goliath. But Listen, I, my I, question I, is, yeah. uh, can there ever be true justice in this country and in this world, for that matter, when rich and powerful corporations like Chevron can use their money, power and influence to not only try to evade justice, but prosecute those like yourself who fight for justice and to hold them accountable. Well, let me just say this to start and then I'll get directly to your question. You know, I have a lot of energy and strength to deal with this. I I feel great, even though I don't wanna be under house arrest. I hate it, but I feel Mm. energized. When they first slapped this ankle bracelet on me and I have, I wanna show it to you or your- well, in a second, but I have to step over there and grab it. It's like a battery. But anyway, when they first put this thing on me on August 6, 2019, it hadn't come off for even a minute. I sleep with it. I eat with it. I shower with it. It chafes. You know, I used to be a runner. I can't get out. I can't run. Um, you know, I go to bed every night with my wife with this damn thing on my ankle, it blinks. It even talks, like when the battery goes low, it's this like anodyne Caucasian male voice comes on and and says, battery low, recharge unit, battery low, recharge unit. And I can't tell you the number of nights it's awakened me and my wife at two, three in the morning. And I gotta get up, go recharge my battery, sleep on the couch so it doesn't do it again. And then you go to start going to bed every night thinking, oh my God, is it gonna go off tonight? You don't sleep as well. And, you know, it's depressing. Suddenly, people started to respond to my situation. I mean, I got on Twitter. I'm not a digital native like you, my friend, and I I didn't know how to do Twitter. I had to be taught. I had like 500 followers when this thing started, okay? And little by little, I started to tell the story my own way and my own words, and people started Mm -hmm. to respond. I mean, it first started with Jody Williams, the Nobel Peace Laureate who organized the 68 Nobels, Jeannie Mirror and others from the National Lawyers Guild. I mean, 200 lawyers signed a letter of support for me, and um, the congresspersons, Paul Passimino from Amazon Watch. I mean, all these people were making stuff happen, and it gives me strength. And I never, Ryan, understood 
the meaning of solidarity as much mm. as I do now, my friend. I mean, I mm. can't explain it. I'm, and I'm telling all the people out there, and we've had thousands of people join our campaign and we want more. Go to freedonziger.org, by the way, if you want to help. I'll get to that in a second. But like, it really matters. Like every person matters. And when you're getting screwed, you know, when you're being deprived of your liberty, when you wake up every day knowing you have so many people who care and who support you and who are doing things, I'm, I'm exhilarated. Okay, I went from depressed to exhilarated. So when you say people are looking at me for maybe my leadership, okay, it doesn't just happen, okay? It's a product of citizen support and action, which really gets to your question. You know, how do we create a society that's just, or at least fundamentally just? How do we create a, a society that operates on so-called free market principles that has more justice, you know, less inequality. And that's all a function, as we all know, of citizen organizing. And, you know, the right wing, the, the Koch brother network, the Koch brothers network, the corporate right, the fossil fuel industry, you know, they're very smart and they're very clever and they have a lot of resources and they have calculated that a linchpin, a shortcut really, to their control is in many respects the judiciary. It's like the last place where they can just easily get judges on um, without a popular vote and ultimately create like a last line of defense to citizen power. And you're seeing this now with the Supreme Court, with 6-3 majority of right-wing conservatives. Right. You're seeing it on all the federal benches. In New York, the Second Circuit used to be a bastion of justice respected globally and it has now turned into a right wing, in my opinion, corporate protection racket for the Chevrons of the world, where they're trying to quash human rights lawyers like me. It's changed. And I will say that a lot of citizens don't understand the role of the judiciary and how important it is in terms of stopping social change. You know, you're going to see this now with Roe v. Wade. You see this with a series of decisions from the Supreme Court, you know, Citizens United and, you know, even these decisions about, you know, knocking out um, the ability to bring class action lawsuits in favor of these private arbitration clauses. You know, I can list 10 major areas of our society where worker power and citizen power has been consciously diminished by Supreme Court decisions, by pro-corporate judges. And people don't even understand, you know, a lot of people respectfully don't even understand how this goes down. You know, so if you want to address, for example, the environmental issue, climate change, you have to understand that there are judges populating our federal courts right now who are on the side of the fossil fuel industry by and large, and it's a tough battle. And until we, I think, understand how to regain control of our judiciary and the other branches of our government, obviously, which has to respond to citizen power, it's going to be really hard to deal in a fundamental way with these issues. Now, luckily, we have people like you and others on these platforms now that we didn't have before. You right. know, the New York Times, again, has ignored this. But, you know, I can talk to Ryan Knight. I can talk to Chapo Traphouse. You know, I've been on Ralph Nader. Um, you know, there are places to go take this story and other stories like it. And I really shudder to think where we'd be without you and others doing this kind of citizen journalism, man. I mean, it's, 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 you know, first of all, no one would even know about me. Right. I mean, I can tell you, I have had journalists come visit me in my apartment from all over the world. I just had a, a German 
network fly 4,000 miles to interview wow. me. And the New York Times newsroom is 30 minute walk from my apartment. They have not come here one time. Oh, the New York Times is, you know, corporate media. And, yeah. and corporate media is, you know, they, they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And let's remember that, you know, who is who funds the corporate media? You know, outlets like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, they're running ads from the big oil companies, from oh, yeah. Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's they, they, you know, in, in many ways, they, they maintain the status quo in America. And, and it's very rare that you'll turn on cable news and you'll hear them talking about issues that affect everyday people in a positive light, you know, issues like Medicare for all issues like yeah. the green new deal. There's always fear mongering and a, and a pro corporate bias and an anti people bias, uh, that, that tends to frame those stories. And so then it, what it, what, what happens is it, it causes for the most part, well, while there are some very informed citizens and, and, and people who get their news on independent media, what happens is it causes the average American to be very afraid of the very change that we need uh, to, to, to save this planet and, and for everyone to have a dignified life. Um, I want to get back to, to kind of what you just said, though, because it really struck me that, you know, when you described uh, wearing the ankle bracelet and, and having to be stuck in your home for uh, over 600 days now and and kind of the, the psychological, uh, almost torture and manipulation that, that Chevron uh, was trying to do to you, to, to intimidate you, and, and to intimidate maybe any other human rights lawyer that would dare you know, challenge their corporate power or that would dare uh, you know, fight for justice uh, for uh, indigenous people and, and for all people of this planet so that we have a sustainable planet. Um, but what strikes me about it is, is Chevron is failing in that regard because you're not intimidated. You're not backing down. You're, you're more energized than ever uh, uh, in this fight. And it's because uh, of the people power. It's because you reached out and you told people about your story. And why I love it is because this is how change happens uh, yeah. in this country. It's how it's always happened. Change has always happened through protest, through everyday people coming together, banding together, and demanding justice. That's how it happens. Uh, you know, we saw that in the civil rights movement. We saw that, and uh, you know, for women to get the right to vote. We saw mm -hmm. that in the you know the marriage equality movement. And, and now I feel like you know the, the last real piece of it is kind of like what you said. It, it's it's having a country and a world where dignity and justice for all people is possible. And that is never gonna be possible uh, when we have a handful of billionaires that control the, the American economy and the world economy. When, you know, when we have just you know, 100 companies uh, that, that really dominate the global economy and, and, and basically do it off of exploitation, off of exploiting uh, the working class and off of exploiting our planet. Uh, and so, you know, I'm just I'm struck by your story because you you haven't been intimidated by their tactics and you've decided to not just fight for yourself, but but to take up the greater cause of fighting for others as well and bringing others into this fight uh, to save our planet and fight back against these these, you know, the, the, the these greedy oil companies like Chevron. Well, that's nice to say. I mean, you're probably giving me far too much credit. I mean, you know. Look, people say, like, if you knew this was going to happen, would you have really done this for the last 28 years? And I've worked on other cases. And, like, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, you, we all make choices in life to go on a path. You know, I take my legal obligations to my clients very seriously. And, by the way, when I first went to Ecuador in 1993, I couldn't believe my eyes what I saw, like, lakes of oil on the ground and, mm. you know, 
you know, and, and the key thing about what Chevron did through its predecessor company, Texaco, it was not an accident, Ryan. This was done de deliberately by design to save money. They decided to pollute as part of their operational design. And I couldn't get my arms around that. I was like, how the heck could anyone in the United States, any executive at Texaco, make a decision to do what I am seeing right now deliberately, knowing people live here and knowing how beautiful this pristine environment is and its importance to the survival of our planet. And I still can't get my arms around that. you know. And I decided then, along with many other people, to not turn our backs on this problem and try to get a resolution um, via the law. you know. And what's crazy is all of the things you just described about exploitation by powerful corporations. What I find most fascinating as a lawyer is the legal infrastructure that's built up to rationalize it. Mm. The rules that are created to make it difficult to challenge it, you know? And they're all couched in like seeming technical neutrality, but they're not really neutral. And I've seen this time and time again in litigating this case and other cases where the courts and the rules and the various doctrines that are designed to appear neutral are actually invented by corporations to protect their wealth and their power. And it doesn't mean if you don't have money, you can't win a legal case in America. You can, okay? There's a certain pockets of space where that is allowed to happen, okay? But when you take on a major polluter at the magnitude we have taken them on at, which is, you know, a $10 billion plus judgment, then they start changing the rules in the middle of the game and they make them apply just to Steve Donziger. You know, for example, I'm the only person in American history ever charged under civil RICO, never got a jury. I'm going to jail. I thought in the United States you can't go to jail unless you get a jury and are convicted. They denied me a jury. And I promise you, she is going to sentence me, Judge Preska, member of the Chevron funded Federalist Society, by the way, to jail, no jury, okay? There's, you know, Judge Kaplan imposed, because I wouldn't turn my computer over, he imposed a billion dollar fine on me, 2000 a day, double every day compounded on day 40, Run the math. If you take 2,000, double it every day, it's 4,000, 8,000, 16. It goes up to 1 billion on day 40. Okay, the largest fine ever imposed in this judicial district was $50,000 on a bank. He's imposing a billion dollar fine on a human rights lawyer. Okay, this is a level of vitriol, animus, unseen in my experience. And it's directed at me a guy who works out of his kitchen, they're terrified. And I'll tell you something, there's something empowering about doing your job in a way that terrifies a major corporate fossil fuel polluter. I mean, there's something mm -hmm. empowering about that for me, you know, but the legal infrastructure needs to be addressed. So, you know, people like the Ecuadorians have a fair shot in U.S. courts when a U.S. company goes down and destroys their whole way of life, which is what happened here in Ecuador. What does it say about the U.S. judicial system that here we are in the middle of a climate crisis and, it, and it's not prosecuting the oil companies, but instead it is prosecuting environmental lawyers who win historic judgments against the mm -hmm. oil, com oil companies? And it's not just me. I mean, you know, this is a blueprint invented to some degree by Chevron and its law firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, 
but it's being copied now by other corporations. For example, um, Energy Transfer Partners has used the same civil RICO statute to go after Greenpeace and other organizations that were involved in the Standing Rock protests. Hmm. You know, and it's happening time and time again. Judges in America let it happen. Even if the case ends up getting thrown out, just by letting it start and letting it breathe a little, when you get into the discovery process, it can bankrupt an environmental organization or an individual that does this work. And it's designed to intimidate. They're called slap lawsuits. They're not legit lawsuits. They're lawsuits brought to shut people up who take on corporate power. And what Chevron has done through me, I mean, I'm like the mother of all slap cases. I mean, you know, because I keep fighting and there's so much money at stake and their head is, I think, messed up. I think I live in Chevron's brain, honestly. They think about me constantly. <laughs> and, and um, you know, but it's happening to many other people in the United States and frankly in Europe and in other countries. I mean, you know, classic. It's like, oh, you know, we're gonna sue you for trespassing because you protested on our property where we're building an oil pipeline. So we'll sue you civilly for interfering and coming onto our property for, you'll sue them for a million dollars, say. And if you're just an average citizen making an average salary in a small town and you get sued by a Chevron, you're gonna say, okay, I'll stop. I won't do it anymore. And then others, young people, older people who might think of joining the next protest, don't show up because it's too scary to think that they also might get sued and then have to spend their meager savings to hire a lawyer rather than to pay for their kids' school supplies or food, okay? So these lawsuits are all designed to shut people up and also designed to advertise their power to the others, to other people, so they don't join the campaign or the environmental justice movement. You know, nobody knows but God how many people who want to help remain silent out of fear that these legal actions That's will right. happen against them. Well, no one knows. I mean, I bet it's millions of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to law well, schools. That's how, that's how the duopoly has maintained their power for so long is through fear. I mean, every, yeah. you know, I, you know, I've been a Democrat my whole life or I was until about a year ago because unfortunately it, what I learned by really kind of looking under the hood of the car of this country is, yeah, sure, the Republicans are more, more overt with their corruption, but in many ways the Democrats are very sinister because they kind of sedate the public with all these great platitudes. But then yeah. they turn around and govern for their corporate donors, just like the Republicans do. So when you realize that both uh, parties that, that control our government have been captured by corporate interests, um, you, you just realize how corrupt the whole system is. And, and then you, you just have to understand that Congress, right, they write the laws. And so when, when, these, when these two parties, when you have one party that's captured by corporate interests, working with another party who's captured by corporate interests, and they together are writing the laws, who are the laws gonna favor? They're gonna favor the, the corporations who've put them into power. And that's, it's in essence, what we have. We have two parties that are writing laws that are rigged to favor the ruling class and favor Wall Street and favor giant corporations and, and, and to exploit uh, the rest of us and to exploit everyday people. And that is really what our government is. It's an oligarchy. And, and, and while the Democrats are good at kind of, uh, you know, putting a better face on it, maybe, or kind of dressing it up and acting like it's all good, in many ways, that's also harmful because it prevents any real shift 
toward justice and dignity for all people. Because a lot of just, you know, kind of average liberals think, well, if I just vote blue, then I'm doing a good job. And that's all I got to do. When it's like, no, we got to pressure these Democrats because they're working for, for Wall Street, too. They're just a lot nicer and use better language. <laughs> well put. I'm going to show you my ankle bracelet. Can you give me a second? Yes, please. Steven is going to show us the ankle bracelet that Chevron put on him to intimidate him, but he is not backing down. Okay, this is the deal. This actually is a battery. Can you see how big this is? Yep. These are my glasses, sort of by size. Okay. Wow. It's pretty heavy. It's probably, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not that light. It's like a garage door opener if you have a car. So right now, you can't see it. On my left ankle, I have something that's about this size. And then every day, I'm responsible for charging this. It's got a wall outlet over here. And then I stick it on my, my ankle. And then a light goes on. And a red light goes on. It shows it's charging. And then after about an hour, a green light goes on. And it's charged. And it starts beeping. Hmm. And I take it back off. And I have to knock on my bracelet to get it to shut up. Because it keeps saying, charge, charge, charge. And I tell you, this thing talks. It'll talk in the middle of the night. Um, but I am responsible for carrying out the state's policy to be able to monitor me on a 24-7 basis. And this bracelet um, allows them to know when I move from one side of my apartment to another, not to mention where I go. And I do get out with 48 hours advance permission for like legal meetings or medical appointments or some school events for my son. You know, I haven't been here for 653 days without getting out, but I get out for extremely limited purposes. It's all, you know, with advanced permission. Um, and I can't, for example, I live on the seventh floor of a New York City apartment building. I can't like go to the lobby to get the mail or I can't even walk out my door to get the newspaper, which is dropped. By the way, I still read the newspaper. Isn't that unbelievable? It's dropped. I mean, a hard newspaper. No, it's great. It's dropped outside um, and it's just not a real existence, you know, and um, it gives them an extreme amount of control over my life. They also took my passport. You know, I used to travel constantly to Ecuador, to Canada, to work with lawyers, you know, I was driving this case. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think part of it, too, is to is keep keeping you confined? You can't yeah. go and, and continue to fight for the Ecuadorian people. You I can't continue to you know, go fight, uh, you know, for other human rights cases. Uh, and also it, it, it's a way to intimidate other human rights lawyers from, from doing the work that's necessary to fight back against corporate power. Is that what this is all about is, is to continue to just intimidate and stop yeah. anyone from doing the good work? I think that's fundamentally the main factor. There's others, but that is a main factor because when, when judge Kaplan charged me, and again, his member, his charges were rejected by the prosecutor regular federal prosecutor. So you pointed this private Chevron law firm. But when he charged me, I was physically in Toronto working with Canadian lawyers on a lawsuit to enforce the Ecuador judgment against Chevron's $25 billion worth of assets in Canada. Okay. Come on. Yeah. Okay. I flew from Toronto to New York to face this because I don't back down and I will never back down and I will never not show up for court. It's just not what I do. Okay. I walked into court and they ambushed me with this ankle bracelet, which I had no idea would happen because it's never happened before. You know, for someone charged with a misdemeanor who's a lawyer, it's no one's ever been deprived of their liberty for even one day. 
mm. much less two years without a trial. So I just found the whole thing, it was schemed up, in my opinion, by Chevron and this law firm that's prosecuting me and the judge. And why does the judge want me locked up? Simple. He's the one who ruled that judgment in Ecuador was a fraud. 29 other judges in Ecuador and Canada ruled it was valid, okay? So if the legal team in Canada is gonna file a lawsuit to execute the Ecuador judgment against Chevron's assets by implication, his decision, the US judge's decision is gonna be exposed, called into question, invalidated. He would be embarrassed. You know, he relied on this paid Chevron witness. That whole case was a debacle, okay? And he did not want himself and his decision to be exposed. And Chevron hmm. didn't want me up there to, they didn't want a lawsuit to be filed. And I just think they made this up to, to keep me down on the farm, you know? And I don't even think they care that much if I go to jail, honestly. They want me at least confined to my home. Um, so I can't travel. And they want to extend this for as long as possible. And, and you've now seen firsthand just how rigged our justice system is for the rich and the powerful. So after everything that you have been through, what keeps you motivated to continue to fight uh, for justice and dignity for all people? Well, first of all, it's what I do. It's my profession and it's my personal value system. So that's one reason. Another reason is, frankly, it's a matter of personal survival. Like if I don't fight, it's over. I mean, my life is over. I think they would steamroll me and who knows what they would do to me, you know? So we have decided that it is best for everyone involved, including me personally and my family, as well as my clients in Ecuador and all of our supporters to be as loud and vocal about the truth as possible. Hmm. And I've learned a lot of lessons, you know, when they first put the ankle bracelet on me, my first lawyer said, you know, you should stop tweeting and just lay low and we'll try to get this worked out. So I stopped tweeting for three months and I was like, it didn't get worked out, okay? It's obvious what they're doing, so sorry, I now have to build my own leverage, my own voice and, you know, our collective power, what you talked about earlier, citizen power, Yep. try to stop this. And the only thing that can possibly stop it is people, is the people who know about it and raise their voices, which is, if I can, we have this website called freedonziger.org. And you can sign up for our campaign. You can also donate to my legal defense fund. Don't worry about it if you can't donate, it's cool. Just go to the site anyway. You can learn more about the case and sign up and you will get regular communications about what's happening. And we ask people to do stuff like our latest thing was we asked people to sign a petition for Merrick Garland to take the case back from the Chevron law firm and have the DOJ prosecute me. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I'm probably the only lawyer in America begging for the DOJ to prosecute me because <laughs> I just want to deal with a professional. I mean, you know, a prof look, the professionals already declined to prosecute me. So they need to take the case back to preserve the rule of law mm. in America to prevent Chevron or a corporation from, you know, engaging in the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history. And then they need to deal with the case professionally. I think they should dismiss it. But even if they don't, let me out of home detention. I'm obviously not a threat to anybody. And let's proceed normally as a case like this would normally happen, not being run and abused by a private Chevron law firm backed by a Chevron-linked judge with no jury.
And finally, what would you like to say to the executives at Chevron and at all the big oil companies who continue to pollute our planet, uh, exacerbate the climate climate crisis, and put the short-term profitability of their corporations over the long-term sustainability of our planet? God, I've never been asked that question. I've done a lot of interviews. I'm kind of, the way I think about these things, these are institutions that are on a mission and it goes well beyond any individual. So I could say to Michael Worth, who's the CEO of Chevron, dude, follow the rule of law, you should. Okay, you're a public company, you have responsibilities to your shareholders, you should be law abiding. But if he were to actually comply with the law, he might be moved out and then someone else would be moved in because this is an institutional problem It is not an individual problem. However, individuals do have discretion to some degree. And I think the CEO of Chevron needs to shift gears. I mean, you want to survive as a company, transition to clean energy, clean up your damn pollution and respect the law and, and stop trying to prosecute me. I mean, one thing we learned in my trial, Chevron is spending millions of dollars to help this other Chevron law firm prosecute me in the name of the public, okay? Stop spending money to lock me up, Mr. Worth, and spend your damn money helping the people you poison in Ecuador get their lives back. That's my advice. Stephen, that is well said. Uh, keep up the fight. It's free Donziger. People miss, okay. It's F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, one N, dot org. Fantastic. Go do that, everyone. And, and Stephen, thank you so much for this conversation. And, and again, keep up the fight and I'll be fighting right by your side. Thanks, Ryan. And thank you for all you do. And I really appreciate you having me on. You bet. Thank you for listening to another episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight. And before we go, I want to take this moment to thank our benefactors who contribute uh, $20 a month to the show uh, to keep this show alive and going. So I want to thank Kenny Ballantyne, Tyler Sambucci, Nate Tocito, Lloyd Chapman, Ed Romo, John Littman, John Paul DeLuca, Susan Sarandon, DJ Comatos, Patty Cleary, and Elizabeth Kim. Thank you so much for your generous donations. And thank you, everyone, for supporting the podcast and supporting my work. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, go to patreon.com slash amped up if you want to support the podcast as well. And for as little as $5 a month, you'll get access to our bonus content. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you next week with an all-new episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight.